Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. Happy Thanksgiving. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, and Victor Davis Hanson is the star and the namesake of this show. And he's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor's writings and his uh, appearances and these podcasts and other podcasts he's on, you can find links to them and uh, the, the full writings at victorhanson.com. I'm going to talk about that a little later in the show. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, one of the first things we should talk about is this uh, FTX cryptocurrency collapse and this, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's a technical term, Victor, weirdo, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of it, now hiding in the Bahamas somewhere. Um, billions of dollars have been lost for many people, but um, hey, its I don't think it's unimportant. I know you don't think it's unimportant. Uh, and we're going to get to your views, Victor, on this character and what he's pulled off and who his friends are in Washington, right after these important messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, um, yeah, I, I must say the only thing I know about cryptocurrency is I've heard of the word. I don't think I have any. I I don't oppose it in any way. I can't. Why should I oppose it? I don't know anything about it, really. But damn, a lot of people know about it and have put billions and billions and billions of dollars into it. And one uh, company that was a sort of premier in this field, FTX, uh, founded by and run by this sloppy looking um, character, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried, 
We've seen pictures all over the web, him sitting at some, you know, some event with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair at his side. And they're, you know, in suits or decently dressed. And this guy looks like he, you know, slept in a dumpster the night before. Anyway, he's he was the biggest, the second biggest donor to the Democratic Party after George Soros. And hey, his company has uh it's, it seems like a Ponzi scheme. It's it's blown up. Billions have been lost. The evidence for this should have been obvious, right, Victor? Quite a while ago by the Security Exchange Commission. But was the Biden SEC going to go after one of their bigger donors? He's in hiding, not in hiding, but he's in the Bahamas right now. Um, God knows what's going to transpire between when we're recording and and Thanksgiving Day. But uh, Victor, it's a big it's a big mess. It's got a lot of political ramifications. And what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, they, people have argued that of the $40 billion worth, and I think there's only, I don't know, 12 or 11 million in real money, the rest is theoretical money, that there might have been a million people that could be, you know, gave $1,000, $1,500 and bought some The point is, he did a lot of damage to a lot of people, a lot of institutions. And he papered over that with this idea that he would amount to this was altruism. And he gave Joe Biden five million dollars. Maxine Waters, who probably was the only white male that she ever liked. But he was spreading the cash around all over. It's exactly what Molly Ball and her friends said to Breckenridge and Wonderful, how they were in the 2020. You know, the cold collusion between Silicon Valley and, and looking for the social media and big, big money and the BNC. What did the guy do? Did, did he go out and was he a contractor? Did he put changes on a roof? Did he build a car in Detroit? No, he didn't do anything. He just created this idea that he had this coin and the regular currency was taking value and it should invest in him. And then he and his girlfriend and Paul Hammer's friends siphoned off, I guess, a billion or two, but probably more, Jack, because we don't know where the 11 billion went. The auditor cleaned up the Enron and said that he's now on the job. He said it's the biggest mess he's ever seen. And the record keeping and the messaging that he didn't know vanished, I guess, in Instagram and those types of apps. And who was he? I mean, I mentioned this earlier. He was a kid who grew up on a Stanford campus. Parents are very well known. He's active as a law professor at Stanford. And he went to a very exclusive Hillsboro nearby prep school. And he was packed off at MIT and did his so-called film. I think he went to an investment firm. And then he, he kind of stormed the country by on this Ponzi scheme, people gave him money and he siphoned it off to this company. And then he started quite wisely if you were, if you had no moral compass. And by the way, how do you have, how do you not have a moral compass if you grew up at Stanford and the Stanford moral community and you went to Hillsborough Prep School right. and went to one of the finest universities? This is what we were told is the incubator, the embryo of high morality in the States. And suddenly, this guy really destroyed a lot of people, but he got immunity by 
you know, funding, I think if you look at the 2020 race, and he did give, I think, something in 2018, and he only gave 40 to 60 million in 2020, he probably gave uh, close to $100 million, but it wasn't for what he gave, it's what he said he was going to promise to give, from one to four or five billion dollars. He was one of the good people who was going to do good things with their good money and do good for himself, and it turned out really bad for everybody else. And um, it brings up this, this larger question that I mentioned to Samuel, that it's eerie that this modus operandi of what the left does now, this, this fusion with big, big money, and for all of the Elizabeth Warren, the same week, was just harping and screaming about the Republican Party and the wealthy and the wealthy. Right. This is right. the ex house flipper herself. And <laughs> she was, I mean, she didn't say a word about this guy. She didn't say a word about George Soros. She didn't say a word about Mark Zuckerberg's 14 right. They don't even mention the Koch brothers for two reasons. Koch brothers were their, their that was their day, Donald Trump, eight and 10 years ago. They hated the Koch brothers. Because they raised all of this, what they call Jane Meyer wrote a book on dark money. They were pikers compared to these people. Pikers, absolutely. I mean, these chump people, change. Yeah. yeah. I mean, compared to Zuckerberg's money, one one guy, one guy, four hundred nineteen million dollars. One guy, George Charles, this little midterm, over a hundred million dollars. This guy, sixty million, and there's something because I worked there. I just noticed that I kind of listen and watch more than speak when I go up there. And it's, it's astounding when you think of it. They all, first of all, who are these people? Well, they always have a little, um, they have kind of a common touch, or they have a neat little appearance that they, they cultivate. For him, it was the slob. It was the, what was the guy on Animal House? Bukowski, uh, Bukowski, Bukowski. Oh my God, John, the John Belushi. Yeah, the John, yeah. he looks yeah. like John Belushi. He drinks. He does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he had. First of all, he's a capitalist, but he's left wing. So you know, you think he wants to? He wants to pay as much income tax as Al Gore and John Kerry would to pay income tax. So he is He's ensconced down in tax in the Bahamas, and then he used this money to get girls, and I don't know what else he was doing. But he's a complete slob. So he had that thing right. He had the left wing politics. And he had the visual, the striking visual appearance. And that's the same thing as Elizabeth Holmes, the architect of the Theranos um, Ponzi, right. Ponzi scheme. And she, she's in the news, so let's talk about her just in fact. Yeah, go ahead, please. She's going to 11 years in prison. She not only ripped off $8 billion from investors, but she disseminated a blood testing device that really either gave false positives or false negatives on the bogus premise that one drop or two drops of blood could give a complete blood count. And they actually started to use that in some chain pharmacies and some people got hurt by it. And she did the same thing. She assembled people on her board that were stellar Stanford Bay Area fixtures. She had, she was a Stanford student. She was one of the good left-wing people. She didn't dress like a slob. She had her own little stick. She dressed like Steve Jobs, all in black. 
I'd seen her on a couple of events at scale. Very striking young woman in her 20s, blonde hair, dressed in black, Steve Jobs, incarnate, sort of. Same kind of whiz kid, only she wasn't Steve Jobs. Right. And she took everybody down with her. Kind of like Mark Zuckerberg, same thing. He's lost, I don't know how many billion now. He's, he's 70, I think. 70 yeah. billion with his own meta idea. Mm-hmm. Like laying off thousands of people whose lives have never changed. But he, he sent in 419 million and he, he has his stick. He has his tie dye shirt, his faded cutoffs or jeans, his flip flops. But they all that have freaking Roman Emperor haircut. <laughs> yeah. So they all they all have the little they have the leftist politics as a veneer that gives them exemption. Right. They're about as crass and materialistic. He works for the FBI to help rat people out you know, yeah. and suppress news. He's got his mansions, just like all these people do. And then they're exempt. The left loves them because they give money to leftist causes. And then they, every once in a while, they wink and nod to their rights and say, oh, we're free market capitalists. We're, we're successful. We're, we're proof that the capitalist system works. And they play both sides. But basically, they're people of the left. And they, they find ways to captivate uh, the permanent administrative state to get exemption from the DOJ, the IRS, the SEC, by showering money on democratic causes, especially green, green, green. I mentioned this to Sam. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's just funny. You know, we, we mentioned Pelosi. We mentioned Diane Feinstein. Tom Steyer on the Stanford Board of Trustees at one time. Right. Uh, spent, I think, $180 million when he ran for president, didn't get one delegate. Right. Talk about money, money, money. And, it, and the, nobody ever wrote, I don't think Jane Meyer wrote another essay about the deleterious effect of money. $180 million and didn't get one, almost as bad as Bloomberg. Bloomberg, right. I don't know. He spent a billion dollars and didn't get one delegate. Or maybe he did get a delegate. But he made his money, Steyer, by financing dirty coal, I think by tuminous coal in places like Indonesia. And all of a sudden, once you get all the money, just like Al Gore, Al Gore sold his cable news station to fossil fuel exporting gutter and then tried to seal the deal before the new capital gains increase came into effect, just like John Kerry moved his yacht to get it lessen his property tax. Um, bite out of Massachusetts. So it, it, nobody should take any of these people seriously. They're complete fakers. They adopt these t- this T-shirt slobby or cool chick appearance. They lavish money and attention on left-wing candidates. They surround themselves with celebrities. And they're completely selfish, and they do people a lot of damage. They do a lot of damage, whether that's dismantling or trying to dismantle natural gas and, and oil or working with right. the FBI to suppress information or trying to warp an election by absorbing the work of a, pre, of, uh, a registrar, as Mark Zuckerberg's money did, or endangering people's lives, as Elizabeth Holmes did, or just absolutely stealing from people. As this guy did, Mr. Bankman Freed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's deeply embedded with Bay Area 
social cultural hierarchy. So his his parents were very well known as activist lawyers, and uh, she was his his mother, as I said, the family was very prominent in, in setting up a kind of I don't know what you call it, Doc, an aggregator where she went to all of her friends in Silicon Valley maybe with a jump start from her sons who have gotten money. And she said, you know, we have the expertise to tell you where your money could be best spent to advance our causes, and therefore you should give all of this money to us and I guess they would take a cut for their expenses, and we won't tell anybody because we believe in stealthy dark money privately while publicly we condemn the idea. And right. That's what she did. I thought she was a full-time law professor. I didn't mean you could be both, but that's what she did. And she's now resigned from what That was the name of this left wing dispersal dispersal. Right. Yeah. And so it's um I don't know what to say. It, it, we should think of it as a complete repudiation of the pretense that an Ivy League education that is um you go to that is, you go to that is not an education, yeah, but a brand, but a branding. Right? Yeah, if you're Zuckerberg, you you've attended Harvard, or if you're Holmes, you've attended Stanford, or if you're Bankman, you went to MIT and prep school. If you're his parents, you're on the faculty at Stanford University. There's not going to be any moral instruction in sorry in any of those associations. None, none. And if you think there are, you're so mistaken. They are cattle running. Mind the gap, I think is what you mean. That is not a moral institution. And then the second thing you should remember is they love money. They like what money can do for them. Right. They like the culture, the sophistication that comes with money, the zip code. And they don't like people that don't have money. That's one of the reasons they don't like the deplorable, the middle feel that they're tasteless. And they're tasteless uh, in a way that the poor are not. They, rom- they, they see the poor as romantic. If the poor doesn't have case, it's because they have no choice. They're homeless or inner city people. But the middle class, they're aspiring. They can buy a club cap pickup. They buy mm-hmm. jet ski. They don't know what they're doing. They harm the rest of us. And they're dangerous people. They're not sophisticated. They're not exquisite. And uh, then there's this element of checking that there is a new element to economic activity, to um, industrialization. It's called high tech. It's clean. It doesn't pollute. It doesn't have smoke. It doesn't use muscles. You're not sweaty. You kind of go into Twitter and you kind of get a massage. You get a special kind of vegetation. Yes, but but you can't eat it, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can't eat it. You can't drink it. You can't drive it. You can't burn it. Right. Whenever they go and step out of these tech worlds, Mr. Bankman or Miss Holmes or Mr. Zuckerberg, then who do they call on? They call on Joe Deplorable, who comes in and puts the granite counter in the home. He installs the stainless steel subarctic freezer. 
He's the guy who makes the ice cream at the plant to deliver to Nancy Pelosi. He's mm. the guy. He's the guy mm. that uh, make hammers in the wood floors. He's the guy that puts eighty pounds of shingles on his back and balances along the crest of the. So that's who they are, and uh, there's something really wrong about it because we have been. How do we address that? How do we address that? I think how will we address it? We we start with the universities and we say, you know what? You're incubators of some very strange people and you give them uh, a currency they don't deserve. And we don't think you should put taxes in. We really don't because you're politicizing education and you're 93, 95% hardcore left. And you, right. you violate the constitution because you have racial standards that violate the civil, the whole corpus of civil rights laws. You have space, safe spaces that are racially exclusive. You can pick your dorm member, uh, your roommate in a dorm by their race. You have something you call a theme house that is a racially segregated dorm report. So you, we don't, you violate these statutes. You don't have equal protection under law. The people who are accused of so-called sexual harassment do not have protections of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. And so we're not gonna we're not gonna make you tax exempt anymore. And you and we're not going to allow student loans uh the government's gonna get out of the student loan business because we've learned one thing that once the moral hazard is no longer an issue to you, that you raise your rate of inflation of tuition higher than the rate of inflation each year. Right. And you don't care about the burden that falls on students because the government guarantees alone, i.e. the government, the taxpayers that you despise do. And so we're just not going to do that anymore. And I think people need to do that. And if you're very well off and you've done well and you write a check to these universities and you don't specify what it's used and you don't call back to make sure it was used as you directed. Right. And you're pouring drugs into the vein of an addict. And uh, it's, I think everybody's got to realize that there's something wrong with this Activity, these Ponzi schemes, multi-billionaire, hip, cool people. And they don't care about the average person. And they do things that are very destructive. You know, you hear all this rhetoric, stop, uh, democracy dies in darkness, democracy will fail. There's nothing more anti-democratic than taking $419 million of your stealth money and sending them into pre-selected precincts so they can hire people that you approve of to go around and vote hard and bring hard ballots. That's destroying democracy. Right. Well, Victor, you know, many of these people gather at the um, G20, which just happened. And we're going to talk about that and one particular character, Klaus, Klaus, Schwab, right after these important messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the Thanksgiving Day edition. So, Victor, um, the recent G20 summit, it also seems that parallel that happening at the same time and places a, a B20 or you know business. Well, why why when the leaders of the these 20 nations gather, why is why is Bill Gates there? And why are all these so you know, ooh. well, I'll tell you why. And then we want your thoughts. Klaus Schwab, who is the German economist, who founder of the World Economic Forum, and uh, he was host, well, participating in this conference at the same time. And uh, Victor, I know you've written about him well, before, I, yeah. but but I think we'd like to get your your uh, fuller thoughts. Let me just say to set our listeners up who may or may not know of him. Uh, here's what Schwab said the other day. Um, in English, but in his, it's like so grating, like you freaking, well, I'm not going to say it. Uh, here's what he said. What we, what we have to confront is a deep systemic and structural restructuring of our world. This will take some time and the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. Let me just read one other quote from him. The world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. We must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social system. The level of cooperation and ambition this implies is unprecedented, but it is not some impossible dream. Who's going to run this uh, whole scheme here, Victor? Klaus Schwab and his uh, and the uh, yeah. Bill Gates of the world. Yeah, no. A, number one, nobody elected this clown for, to anything. He has no, he has no currency. He has no authority. He's never been elected to anything. So that's number one. Number two, he wouldn't talk like this in his 20s when he didn't have anything, if he didn't have anything. He's talking about somebody who's very, very wealthy. And he knows that whatever happens, he's never subject to the consequences of his own ideology. And so he's not telling that middle class tire store owner who's out there every day at six in the morning uh, selling tires with the hopes that he can buy a home and we can send his kid to college and maybe just maybe buy a boat. He's not worried about that guy. That guy is the enemy. And so that's for these, these are very, very self-centered, narcissistic people. And what does he want? He wants no borders. He wants sort of what George Orwell was talking about with East Asia versus Oceania, just free or just big conglomeration. And so how that works out in the real world, he loves the EU, but the EU hasn't gone far enough. I mean, the EU can tell people in Greece that 
in Crete that that is not a banana. It looks like a banana. It tastes like a banana. But it has to have a certain length and size before you can use it as a banana. That's how close he means when he says must every aspect. Nobody's ever elected this person. He has no idea that he has a very checkered, uh, very, there's a very checkered record about people like him in the past, whether it's the Robespierre brothers or Joseph Stalin or it's Adolf Hitler or it's Mao Zedong. They all said that they were going to create a fair, equitable, modernistic, advanced society under their apostasy. Right. And they always have another trait. They always act like this, and they always proceed on during a crisis, some type. For the Robespierre brothers, it was the uh, French the storming of the Bastille, the original effort to get rid of the monarchy, or maybe keep it with a constitutional republic, but make a republic. And they took advantage of that and moved it to the left. For the Bolsheviks, it was World War I. Without World War I, they would not have come to power. For the Nazis, it was the Great Depression. For Mao Zedong, it was the Chinese Civil War. And for him, as he wrote in his book, COVID and the Great, it was COVID. And boy, he, he was explicit that during this pandemic and this chaos, there's a chance for us to, to squeeze in or to wiggle through the scene and get power that nobody really thought. Remember Hillary Clinton said that this is a COVID gives us a chance to get uniform health care. And Gavin right. said COVID gives us a chance to get progressive capitalism. I think progressive capitalism for Gavin Newsom is you get big loans from the Getty family and then you could get to pay the income tax on I mean, the property tax promptly when it's due on one of the big mansions. But, you know, there's a really good book out. I, w- I wish everybody would read Michael Walsh, who was a former time uh, essayist, wrote a book against the Great Reset, already edited it. And I wrote the introduction, but I'm not trying to suggest you buy it from me, but there's some wonderful essays in it. You know, Roger Kimball, Douglas Murray, the late Angela Cotavilla, Michael Anton, Conrad Black's got a great one. And another guy who's really, I think, brilliant is David Golden. I've always, I mean, he's been a critical man in the past, but he's a very brilliant guy. And they they just destroy this entire idea of a great reset. In a different can I, yeah, Victor, can I, it's called the, that Against the Great Reset, 18 Theses Contra the New World Order. And you can get it on Amazon. It's uh, like 22 bucks so by michael yeah. walsh yeah. yeah michael did a very good job and it's it's a, it's it's just a complete expose of what this is all about i mean and they're not to be underestimated they have already pretty much in europe enforced uh extra national laws that somebody like ireland wants to have a, a they've really gone after ireland so that it cannot have a cheaper excuse me a smaller capital gains or regulatory climate or tax situation vis-a-vis the other European courts of countries that would draw in um, investment on a multinational corporation. So remember what they're doing. They're trying to bully any single nation. And that's why he's obviously confirming the biggest country in the EU. And they're saying, this is going to be a uniform tax bill. This is going to be a uniform regulatory environment. This is going to be a uniform labor situation. 
We're going to have diversity, equity, inclusion on every corporate board in the world. And we're going to go after any corporation that doesn't meet our standards. We're going to turn loose boycotts, ostracism, uh, government sanctions. That's what they want to do. And what are they ultimately with the goal? We're all going to live in high rises. We're all going to get to work and we're going to go in Orwellian mass transit. So the right. stoneyums outside my avenue is $15 billion without one foot of fracking for less. Well, viewers, we're all going to do that. And once in a while, we'll have a ride share with one electric vehicle that we can use on a Sunday afternoon. And every element of our life is going to be regimented. What we eat, and you know, you can really see stars. Uh, my daughter has a home in Santa Cruz and she's trying to get a permit for remodeling. There are statutes in that town that want to make you file permits to show that all the building materials are green. I, oh my if gosh. Use, if you're going to use PVC, what type of PVC is it? Uh, what's the environmental impact of drywall? That kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. How do you live in a, uh, in a, in a state know. like that? Yeah. It's been a wow. year and she's still working on it. It's about a thousand. The result is it's about a thousand dollars a square foot to remodel. And so, but not, but not only the price, then the torture of having to, to find the right, uh, the right supplies, et well, cetera. Exactly. It's, it's, it's torturing people. They it, love torturing it, it people. It puts enormous onus on contractors yeah. and everybody. It just means that you're going to have more homeless people and less affordable housing. And so that's what they do. That's what they, that's what they represent. They're wealthy people. They fly jets, the Davos. They damn people who use fossil fuels. So. And their way of thinking, one John Kerry that burns seven gallons a minute of fuel is right. much, much, much needed, but not somebody named Hector Gonzalez who's trying to drive from Salma to Mendota and burns seven gallons maybe the whole day. Right. I don't know. And is doing something productive, like driving for 10 hours and a massive cracker to produce food for everybody. No, that's bad. But not John Kerry who must circle the world and jawbone and tell us exactly what to do before he moves his yacht to another berth so he can reduce his capital gains his property theft. These are really bad people, everybody. They really are. And they're one world government. They're old as Alexander the Great's Brotherhood of Man. They're old, as old as the platonic idea that Socrates, I'm a citizen of the world. Right. Uh, no, you're not, Socrates. You know, I think Diogenes Laertes, the first source that cites that. But no, no, you're not a citizen of the world because you should listen to Isocrates. And so the problem with the Persians is that they are obsequious to their superiors and they're haughty to their inferiors. And that's not what a transparent democratic society inculcates. That's different. The people who died at Thermopylae were qualitatively different than the subjects of Xerxes who tried to invade and kill them. They're not part of one world government. I think everybody realized that. There's a yeah. difference. And maybe we'll get to that point someday, but we're not there now. And one world government means you lower the bar all the way down to something like the Union Commission Human Rights. Where you have North Korea sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the only way to have one world government is to be completely 
uh, oppressed. <laughs> that's, that's, there's no way to. Victor, do you have any? It makes me think. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I'm uh, calling an audible here, but is, uh, I'll, I'll say Brave, Huxley's Brave New World. Is there any dystopian novel writing that? Because I, I I I would encourage folks to try to find dystopian novels and read them to get emotionally boned up for uh, this. Uh, this uh, real enemy we have in World Economic Forum and others. But there, is there any dystopian novel that you particularly well, I, like? I mean, I mean Soyant Green was based on a novel. Uh, right. Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 was based on a dystopian idea. Oddless Huxley, as you said, Brave in the World, George Orwell, 19. They all had something in common, and that is, as 20th century people, they looked at... Um, the rise of totalitarianism in out of World War II, at first on the right, the socialist right, whether under Mussolini or Hitler, and then after the defeat of those paradigms under Mao and Stalin, and what the common denominator was that these were not political movements. They had, um, and, and Mao, they were total. Total, and that's what if you look at the vocabulary of Lao Swap, that's what he's talking about. Total. What right. do I mean by total? I'm talking about the way you buy things, what you eat, where you go, how you think. They want to control every aspect of it. And you see that how that and that really starts in the modern pre-modern period in the French Revolution when they rename the days of the month, the days of the week. Mm-hmm. They Worship the god reason. They went out and destroyed the monasteries. They, it was ground zero. I, could, I think I mentioned that. And it was a, a, an obscure book in German I once, when I was doing my research in the thesis. It wasn't Kohlmeyer, but it was something like that. And I looked at the publication and it said, three, three. And it was published like 1935 or 36. And his publisher had started the year zero when Adolf Hitler that takes mm-hmm. control after the death of Hindenburg as vice chancellor. And that was the beginning. And so that was the year zero. These are year zero people, just like Stalin, just like Mao. Mao is the closest example um, to a dystopian novel because, I mean, he had people, or Gaddafi. Gaddafi, when I went to Libya, I realized that he had banned violins and musical instruments that had bore any trace of colonial infection and everybody had to be destroyed as Italian violins. Everybody had to be a producer and equal, so they were raising chickens and eggs in the bathtub. Everybody had to uh, marry a black woman from Africa so you could knight this vision of southern and northern Africa. And it all turned out really bad. And so that, that, that's important to remember that right. any, anybody who calls for a total, total revolution or a great reset, the language always fits them off. They want to control not just who you vote for or what type of government you have, but they want to control how you eat, what you wear, where you go. Right. And that's what you really get with these climate activists, these atheists and agnostics who created this religion, and it becomes overwhelming for them. And the same thing, I'm afraid to say, is starting to happen with the transgender movement, that it's gone out, but not just if people suffer from the genuine problem of dysphoria, 
it's now become a political movement. And right. if you're a, a gay woman and you suggest that uh, women's sports should not have biological males, then you're an enemy of the people. Uh, J.K. Lawrence right. becomes an enemy of the people. So if, if, if you're either completely for this totality or you're, or you're a non-person that should be destroyed. Well, right. I, I, I think the, the end game is, uh, and we saw this a bit on social media during George Floyd uh, riots, there's, there's no hiding. You have to, you just can't, you have to put up an avatar on your a Facebook page or your uh, Twitter page that's pro-George Floyd. We, you can't not have an opinion. You have to genuflect. Uh, the first and, time I went down to, into Richmond and I went down the avenue with all the statues, they had started to put, I think there's a statue was erected of Arthur Ashe, right? And then I looked at, as a student of the Civil War, I looked at these statues, and you could make the argument that some of them were diehard, slave-holding, racist, but some of the people were problematic. You know what I mean? They were tragic figures. They were good people who fought for a terrible cause. And yet, when you think back, they demolished all of that. There was no... Let's make an exemption here or there. They just went through and blanketly. There's a good article in the City Journal about this issue, about what they did. And when you start tearing down statues of Cervantes or Frederick Douglass as the iconoclastic post-George Floyd toppers did, or you start changing the name of streets, you know, and I, I've said that before. When I go to my office and one day I haven't been there for a while and Father Humithio Sarah Plaza is erased. Right, right. Now it's Stanford Plaza on the presumption that some small little group said that he used corporal punishment when he established the missions without any other context of who he was, what the missions did for California, what was the purpose, how he suffered. No, no. They do that. And that's what's scary because they're trying to redirect the entire past to this particular goal in the future in the present. They do it in the present, manipulating the past to control the future. It's right. paraphrasing what, 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 or what it does. But as a general rule, everybody should remember when somebody stands up that I'm going to tear down that statue. I'm going to rename that building. I'm going to ban that book. Left or right, you better be very careful. Yeah, there's no um, no uh, healing is allowed. No forgiveness is uh, permitted. It's funny, uh, not funny, but I, I saw something on Twitter today. I don't know why it came up, but it was a reunion at Gettysburg of of uh, Confederate and, and Union soldiers in 1913, and there was a you know the country was a sense of getting beyond past healing and. That whole aspect of of post civil war is is important to keep this nation together and and to move move past. They have no but, idea. They have no idea because they're historically ignorant. Wow. I I know and like Ken Burns. I you know, but I, as I've told him personally, he could not make the Civil War movie now. If he put Selby Shelby. Foot. Oh, foot, right. No way. No but way. The historian, oh. he put him on there again. Right. And he allowed Shelby Foot to say, as he did, as I remember, if I had been alive at that time, I probably would have fought to protect Tennessee. Uh, he would, that would be banned. And right. his whole idea 
Uh, if you go back in Hollywood and you look at the so-called Southerner, and these were written, these movies were made by, in many cases, immigrants from Germany that were fleeing the Holocaust or Jewish Americans that came out of Eastern Europe, very liberal people. But there was this idea in the United States that the overwhelmed South uh, fought the industrial North and three to five percent of the South held slaves, the sort of gone with the wind class. I'm not talking about that right. plantationists, but that the poor whites were not, didn't have the benefits of industrialization or the wealth that was created by Yankee ingenuity or whatever you want to call it. And they were tragic figures because they were the thought, cannon fodder that went up against the superior outnumbered. They were outnumbered by, um, you know, they were the guys that died at the end of the war to Sharps and Henry repeating rifles while they were using muskets. Right. They, they were the people who were barefooted by the Union Army. And out of that reality, you saw Hollywood and Shane. Remember, you, you're a low-down Yankee liar. Remember he said that to Jack Right. Man? Right. And John Wayne had the Confederate shirt and the searchers, and he kind of, maybe he rode with Contrail. You don't quite know. And he's, he's a Southerner. He was in the tech. I don't know what his relationship was in Texas. But what I'm getting at is the Southerner in Hollywood and in popular culture was a tragic figure because he fought for the wrong cause and he was used or something by cosmic forces larger than himself, whether it's true. You could not, if you were Joan Baez who took that band song the night they go, Oh, Dixie Dan, right? You, yeah. couldn't, you couldn't play that today. Right. But we've just decided to take a whole element of our experience and say every single person who fought for the South was a racist who has to be condemned. Or James Longstreet, you got to tear down that guy's statue, even though he did not Victor. Want, want to go to the Civil War. He, he was a Yankee, basically, after the war, but tear it down. Yes. Yeah. Well, we should move on and talk about talk about the day, the day that today is. Uh, well, it's really Saturday the nineteenth, but uh, I had uh, asked Victor ahead of time if uh, he might share uh, some of his uh, what it was like uh, uh, on Thanksgiving on the and the Hans- on the Hanson Farm once upon a time. And we're going to. Uh, here, Victor's uh, reminiscing. If if there's anything to, to reminisce about, and we'll do that right after these important messages. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland. Father Brown and Death in Paradise, plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Uh, so uh, I don't think I've made the commercials yet. So let me do it quickly. VictorHanson.com. Visit it and you will find links galore to everything Victor writes. American greatness, new criterion, other pieces, other places. 
his various appearances, YouTube channel, find links. There's also a, a significant amount of original material, original to that website that Victor writes. It's called Ultra. You cannot read it unless you subscribe. Subscription is to just test it out is $5. You will like what you see. You will love what you will see. You will regret not having done this sooner. And it's $50 a year for full subscription to VictorHanson.com. So check it out uh, today. And if you haven't done so already, come on, chop, chop. So as for me, Jack Fowler, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. And uh, it's a dozen or so recommended readings that I think you will like. So you can get it for free. We don't sell your name. It's not not transactional. It's just me wanting to share some thoughts. Civilthoughts.com. You can sign up there. By the way, if I may, Victor, uh, this is uh, Victor has uh, kindly agreed uh, along with Tony Woodleaf. And Tony is Tony wrote uh, I Citizen for Encounter Books published earlier this year. Of course, Victor's the author of The Dying Citizen. And both Victor and Tony will be on a, a webinar. I host a, a monthly webinar for the Center for Civil Society. On uh, December 6th, we'll be talking about the fragility of citizens, sh- citizenship. I wish I could say the word. So you go to uh, AmericanPhilanthropic.com and check out events, and you'll find a link for this event. Why don't you sign up? It'll be on December 6th. It's a uh, Zoom, via Zoom. You're going to see Victor's face. Yes. Um, so, my friend, um, and you are my friend. I'll say something at the end of the show about that. Yeah, what was it? I, you know, I have this northeast perspective on everything. I should, of course, I should. I'm from here, but hey, it's it's Thanksgiving. It's cold, or some people are shoveling snow. For all I know, in the Central Valley. Um, and the farms of the Central Valley and the Hanson Farm. This is, it was a day to celebrate because it's America and Thanksgiving. But are the are the crops in, Victor? Is it a downtime when you're celebrating Thanksgiving? Yeah, it, it, it was kind of a. Remember the Thanksgiving predate, predated Thanksgiving. It goes back to Roman times. It was this harvest party. We always had a harvest party after we got the raisin crop in. But Thanksgiving right. came out of that English tradition that you thank people that. It's now fall and you have food for the winter that you produce. But here in the San Joaquin Valley, whether we have deciduous fruits or nuts or uh, grapes or raisins, they were all in. And, and But we all, you know, everybody that lived in the farm was trying to be self-sufficient. So we had grapefruit trees, we had orange trees, we had persimmons. And um, we, so all of that, and we had our own raisins and things like that were always on the table. But very strange. We had a very small house. I never quite figured it out. My parents were had educated, but they came back and they moved this old 900 square foot home onto a corner of the farm. It had one bedroom, an old ancient kitchen. My brother still lives there, and one living room. I, I, were, were you were you alive when the house moved? No, or was this before you were born? Okay, it was done right. Actually, it was done. I was born into that house. It was done during my older brother's birth. Okay, and then okay. my dad. I mean, they never tore it down. It was ancient. It was drafty. It was had terrible wiring. But then they built. He built himself a three bedroom square box kind of thing next to it, and we 
had a patio in between. So we, when I grew up, we had this 900 square or maybe 800 square foot, three bedrooms. And we had a bat, one bath we all shared, the five of us. And then, um, and then you ran through this, you, know, you ran across this lumpy patio, which my dad made from old concrete ditch pipe that was abandoned. And he brought it into the truck and we cemented it with rocks. And then we went into the house where there was the living room and one bathroom in the kitchen. So we ate our meals in one and ran across outside to the other. It was very strange, but we had this Thanksgiving where in this little tiny house, uh, my paternal grandfather, who was Swedish, and he was a widow, he was a horsebreaker, he was a veteran, disabled veteran from World War One, and then our family, and then my mother's sister, and who died very young, like my mother did. She died at 49. She was a community college teacher that my grandfather had mortgaged the house, uh, ranch and sent her to Stanford for an MBA. But she'd come back, and her husband had worked on the ranch, and their two kids, our first cousin. And then my father had a sister, and they brought their three children. And then my maternal grandparents were right down the road. So I would go down and get pick them up. And then my mother's third sister was crippled for life with polio, barely moved. She's a wonderful, very good Lila Davis. And she was a wonderful person. And I would load, pick her up and put her in the car and we would all go and we would cram in this big table. I mean, it took the entire living room and you could hardly move. And then my dad was this big Swedish guy, you know, six, four to 20 and He'd been a football coach, football player. He was working at a community college. He was playing a farm sometime, some years. But he was a great cook. He met, he, and he self-taught. His mother had been a very good cook, but he cooked the turkey and did that. And then my mother was a good, and they made this huge dinner. I mean, it was just overwhelming. And then we'd have about 25 people, all of these yes. relatives. And then as soon as it started to get over, my dad would make this big, huge package. And I would go get in the car and drive over to an 80-year-old great uncle who lived by himself with his wife. His name was Tango Johnson, Cattleman. <laughs> and I would deliver it to him. He was a far-right Republican. My dad had the greatest sense of humor. He was an old Kuhn Democrat. And he'd say, go take it over to Tango and... Have a drink with him, and he'll pour you some good right-wing advice. <laughs> and I would go over there, and this guy was five, uh, six. My grandmother's brother, he had cowboy boots on with a monogram tango, uh, big Stetson, and kind of a New Mexican accent. He was from New Mexico, and I would give him the food for his wife, and my nice wife. They were in their 80s. And then I had to stay there and have two shots of whiskey with him. And he'd say, <laughs> when are you going to be a good Republican? And I'm going to make you a Republican. And, <laughs> and you got to get rid of those commie Democrats. It was so, and nobody, uh, a lot of people didn't like, I always got along with him very well. He was very funny. Was, was his re real name Tango or was that his no, nickname? His name was Langford, but he did the Tango. Okay. With and he, okay. Had he had lived in the depression where I'm living now at my grandparents' farm. There was 30 people living here. Anybody who was related to Reese Davis, my grandfather in the 30s, he picked up a few 
crane station. And right now, as I look out the window, there's eight buildings here. There's a shed. There's a packing house. There's an old, uh, you know, where the windmill and the water tank was. There is right. a barn. And they were full of relatives. And Damn. he came with nothing from New Mexico with my grandmother. Right. 19, born in 19. And he lived there. And then he became really prosperous. He had a brilliant idea. Only in America could a guy do this. He came up with the idea that he would operate the local sewer farm, Greywater. So he got a lease for it. And then he put, he got the land. So then those days, they took the solid toxic waste and put it in silos. And they let the gray water, gray would be what? I guess it had fecal material, urine, but it was not, it was nitrogen rich. And they, they just let it go out over 600 acres. And he divided that 600 acres up into 40 acre parcels and they had pipelines. And so they would flood one and then the other. And then by the time they went clockwise around, the, the alfalfa and the grass flew like crazy. And then he went, in this cattle truck, and he was completely deaf. So he didn't go to World War One. He was born in 1900. He didn't go to World War Two, and he couldn't hear a thing. And he drove that cattle truck all the way up to Montana and bought calves for nothing and drove it back himself. His wife went with him and, you know, interpreted because he couldn't hear. Right. And, and then he put those cattle, they grew like, they grew like crazy on that thick nitrogen gas. He was getting paid by the, the town to get rid of the sewer. He was getting free land to operate the sewer. He got free uh, uh, irrigation water. He got cheap cattle from Montana. And then sure enough, who would ever thought this, that the local slaughter yard was only four miles from him. He didn't even want to transport. So he took all of his cattle and he got on his horse and he just led them like he was on Red River, right down, <laughs> hey. the, right into the... <laughs> to the death house and he had no overhead and he made a fantastic hey. amount of money. And when he died, uh, he had adopted people. You know, none of us were his heirs, but he was very uh, frugal and he ended up with an extraordinary amount of money, but he was, it was all calculated to spend no money and to be, it must've been a hundred percent profit. And he was wow. thanks, Thanksgiving. He, he had been in an argument with my grandfather years before. Who knew what it was? An old family lawyer, but he wouldn't come over. So we delivered, right. we delivered stuff. There was actually two or three care packages my father would give one of us, and we would go deliver them to relatives that either were housebound or had, who knows, in the 30s or 40s or 50s, they had had. So we're going to have to splice this. Um, so anyway, I'll just finish. And uh, one of the people who... My, we gave um, a, a care package to was my uncle, Tango Johnson. He was named that for his mastery and his use of, of, of dancing the tango. And uh, as I said earlier, he was an entrepreneurial genius. He, <laughs> I guess that's the word genius. People who knew him didn't say that. I was fond of him, but a lot of people weren't, but. He got the contract to dispose of the wastewater for the local municipality out in the country. He rented several hundred acres. He contrived a pipeline system where the white, I guess we call it the gray matter, gray water. Gray would water, drain, yes. would, would drain into 40-acre parcels clockwise. 
his alfalfa grew like crazy. He went and trucked. He went all the way to Montana by himself. Sometimes his wife accompanied him. He was tone deaf. I mean, he was actually deaf. He was not tone deaf. And then he brought young calves. They fattened up at a super rate. And the slaughter yard was on the same avenue. He got on his horse and saved the transportation and just took the now fat cattle right into the uh, slaughter house. And there was no expense. I so mean, Uncle Tango must have been loaded. He was loaded. He was loaded. And he was very parsimonious. And he never spent a penny. <laughs> in fact, he came out once. And he found pennies in the house he would pick up and he would not pay for his garbage. So he always would sneak in. In those days, they didn't have plastic bags, but uh, paper bags full of garbage. And we would put them in our shared garbage bin. But, you know, and he was he also had a deal where the local pound was out there. So we'd go over there and before he would always say to us, Go in there, and they're going to be shooting those dogs or gassing them or whatever they do. Just take whatever you want. And so we would go. He had a key to it, so all of our dogs came out of the the pound that was located on his property. I'm not sure if I'm giving him away. He's been dead for 20 years, but he lived to be 96. Uh, In his huge cowboy boots, he was about 5'5". When his hat, it seemed like it was a couple of feet high. (laughs) He was probably, he wore shades. He always had a toothpick or a cigarette in his mouth. He drank whiskey and he made a lot of money. He was tight as they could be. He never spent a penny. He adopted adopted somebody who was like 45 of his heir, but didn't stop my dad. My dad kind of, although they were diametrically opposed politically, my dad kind of, care of them in the sense of every Thanksgiving yeah. delivery service, as I said. But we had, I have, that's what's so sad. I, I feel sometimes that this new generation has missed that out because if you look at the, the data on the two parent nuclear family, there's a couple of things that are very disturbing. People are getting married, as I wrote in the Dying Citizen, much later. Right. Uh, they're not buying a home until much later. And they're having less than two children. But when we were growing up, these nuclear families, all these kids, uh, there were the three of us, the two of my cousins, my other three. So there was always eight children running around. And there were all of these World War II veterans. My father, the B-29 guy, my grandfather, the... Uh, use our argon gas veteran and my uncle had been up uh, in Alaska during the invasion, Japanese invasion of the Aleutians and uh, every once in a while another relative would come in and it was just, it was just a marathon. It was my parents got up in the dark and they cooked, cooked in this little obsolete kitchen in this little 900 square foot home and these people traipsed in. And they, we, <laughs> we had these, uh, my dad made sawboard. He was a very good carpenter. So he had these plywood, uh, self-made tables. And my mom had these elaborate uh, tablecloths that were beautiful. And we had this long table. And then everybody swarmed in, 20 or 30 people. And it was just, 
it went on and on and on. It went yeah. on until eight or nine at night. It was just an all day event. People coming in and there, there'd be neighbors that come in and my dad, would, Oh, I have some food. Sit down. And it yeah. was, it was really something. And Christmas was even a, a, a more extravagant version of that. And when I look at my own family, we, I didn't keep, I mean, all the people, the young people there were, it was, it was all predicated on one principle that we were growing up on this. 135 right. acre farm and my right and we were going to combine it with my other grandfather's 45 acres and that was a simple experience so all everybody was involved in that either had worked there or would work there or helped out um so they had a common purpose and they all had the same values and it just you don't right. see it it's it's gone it's disappeared it's right new it's it doesn't my all the people later who dissolved from that nexus, they didn't follow it. They couldn't. My, I have a, sister, a cousin that we consider my sister, but she tried to, and she did a wonderful job for years. She had a, in Fresno, in an urban environment, she had a beautiful home and she, you know, she inherited her mother's silver and all of the trimmings and the tablecloths and, and she had all the recipes. So she tried to do that. And she invited us. It, it worked for a while, but it was overwhelming for her to do that because this was kind of a communal effort. My parents were the cooks, but we were the delivery boys and then everybody brought dishes. And I think that's true of all of us that grew up in that age of the fifties and sixties. Right. Something happened, something went wild or off the tracks in the seventies and then accelerated during the eighties and then it's imploded yeah. entirely in the twenty first century. It was the it's the world now, pajama boy and life of Julie. It's not the nuclear family that predominates extended family. Very few people are living on a compound or in a house where their mother or their grandparents, there's three generation of the family. Yeah. Ours was I I have to say, even my myself, Victor, I ended up, I lived with my grandmother who lived with her sister, my great aunt and her husband. And, and there was always every day that was the uh, cousins came over and have that kind of experience. I, I, it was the most wonderful thing. It really was it's, for young people because yeah. you had that uh, lore and wisdom of older people. You learned what arthritis was. You learned what rheumatism was. You learned right. what glaucoma was. You learned what death and all of these aches and pains. It really taught you that when you got old, you're just not going to feel great and be older. Right. Go through this metamorphosis that these older people went through. Yeah. And I, remember I had an aunt that was so, it was so bright. And she lived in the house I'm living in my house when I was growing up. Um, and she never, she couldn't function on her own. She died here. But she was so crippled by the, the effects of polio. And she had gone to the Shriners Hospital and she had uh, 27 operations breaking the oh. bone. And those days, um, they broke a bone to straighten it out. And right. of course, it didn't work. So she was, oh. and she'd always say to us, Victor, Victor, can you just do a somersault for me? Can you just do a somersault? Oh. A cartwheel, cartwheel. And then yeah. she'd say, you know, and I, I, I could do that until I think she was four when she got it or five. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you had all of these weird stories. And every yeah. once in a while, Belden would ride his bike from town. He'd had bingo figure in the Philippines and he had brain damage. But everybody had these 
families. And I was thinking about that the other day. Would they be homeless today? Is that what would happen? If, mm. if I mean, I don't think there was a homeless. I mean, there was something called hobos and bums. Every once in a while, you see a guy come, you know, he'd be riding a bike or walking along the rural avenue. And, you know, he had a sack of clothes and he'd come in and say, you know, can I work or can I have some money? That was very rare. We had a eucalyptus grove not long ago. It was called Hobo Jungle, where every once in a while some guys would camp out. But right. not like this. And I think the difference is that not just that we closed the mental hospitals after one people with a cuckoo's mask, that was the catalyst for it. But then we, uh, each family thought, you know what? I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to take care of that family member. They're too much of a drag. They could it's an out. inconvenience, right? I can't I can't go out to dinner. I can't catch a movie. So Thanksgiving yeah. brings back that whole, it's like looking through a, I don't know, it's like looking through a small little window into a whole different world that no longer exists. And this is important, Jack, because one of the themes of this country right now and its madness is that the past was so bad. It was all these evil white people. They were all racist. They were all sexist. They are all homophobic. And it, it wasn't true at all. I mean, we had we had guests from the other families that had grown up on a farm, you know. Right. And they would come from L.A. and visit sometimes. I mean, two of, one was obviously gay, and her partner was gay, and she never married. She's very attractive, and she'd come and stay with my grandparents, and then we'd have Thanksgiving. I won't. I'll just say their name was Jane because they they probably have relatives. And everybody would say, "I say, Mom, how, how come Jane's not married?" Well, because she doesn't want to get married. And that's enough for you to know. She doesn't want to get married. She's a wonderful person, and it was no big thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm, I'm sure that there was prejudice and all that, but people went around. The um, what they considered a deviation from the norm, they they made allowances for it, and uh, it was it was it was normal, but right. it completely reduced the past to a caricature, a melodrama of good versus evil, and it wasn't that way at all. And yet, the people who have done that have destroyed what was good about the past, and then in their infinite wisdom. They're telling us they made things better. But when I look at the world today and I see, I can tell you in my small little community, Jack, there was never, when you went to the drugstore, as I discovered uh, yesterday, there was not uh, shavers locked up. They're, they weren't behind lock and key, a little shaver, uh, right. a razor, and everything right. else. You could, you could get some, you could get an allergy medication without being locked up. You could buy a hairbrush without it being locked up. And when you went to the lumber yard, uh, it wasn't, uh, when you pick something up at the lumber yard, you didn't have to look five or six times to see whether a button or a switch had been stolen right. off, off a chainsaw or something that you bought. So that, that, it's maybe cosmically we're more tolerant, we're more enlightened, but materially, and here and now, we're a lesser people. We really are. Yeah. Well, I hope the good Lord uh, finds that there are 10 people worth saving. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so, so we don't I, repeat I, I, so, Sodom I, I, and Gomorrah. So, uh, 
But Victor, we're supposed to be upbeat right now. It's Thanksgiving. Yeah, we're going to be upbeat. We don't want to listen. We don't want to think about <laughs> Sam Bankman free. We don't want right. to think about Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. Although I feel bad she's going. Yeah, well, well, Sam Bankman free should have listened to Uncle Tango and earned his money honestly. Yeah, he would have. <laughs> whatever a person said about Uncle Tango when he would point to a cow and say, that cow is $150 in the bank, Victor. You better learn the power, the value of a dollar. I took that cap all the way from Billings, Montana. And there it is, and it's fat, and it's my cow. And that's a big stake that somebody's going to pay me for. <laughs> it wasn't cryptocurrency, you can believe that. <laughs> Fever tango. Well, Victor, I want to—I just want to say uh, that I'm—I'm I'm thankful for many things. Because Sharon, my dear wife and kids, and my mom, who's living with me now, and my family, my faith, and still my country. And I'm especially thankful that you and I are our friends. And uh, same here. Well, I'm, and we're very, I'm, thankful, we're very, we're really thankful that people will spend their time to listen. Amen, amen. We're thankful to our listeners. So uh, I wish you, Victor, and the great uh, Mrs. Hansen, who is a phenomenal cook. I've had the pleasure, and Sharon too, of of being treated to, by her g generosity and spirit and her culinary skills. Uh, I hope you. And yours have a, a happy Thanksgiving and all our listeners will also. And we will be back uh, soon with uh, another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. God bless. Thank you, Jack. And thank everybody for listening. <laughs>